This is another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is Don Kamarechka, your host, to geek out about photography stuff on episode uh, 178, recorded on May 18th of 2023. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, this show, I pick four stories, sometimes a little bit more, and we just geek out about the news that has happened to be coming down the pipe over the next uh, or the past week. In this case, a little bit more because we've been off the air for a bit, a little bit of a reprieve on my end uh, that was, I think, well-deserved. But we are back into the fray, and joining me today is my good buddy, Jordan Drake. Jordan, how you doing, man? I am doing great, Don. Great to be back on the show. Uh, and it's great to have you on, when, especially when I've got video stories that I know you are the great expert for. And we're talking more than just video stuff. We've got a new camera from RED. Uh, we've got the demise of imaging resource, the Nikon Z8, which I think you've got some pretty good opinions on, uh, and some legal stuff that's going to be fairly interesting to anybody that values their copyright. But before I get into any of that, how are you in the transition from DP Review over to Petapixel? Well, I mean, the last time we talked, we were right in the thick of it, and it was pretty chaotic. Now it's nice. We're kind of hitting a regular stride again with the episodes. You know, I've got a couple of them going out every week. Uh, May is being a surprisingly huge month for camera releases. So uh, we got a lot coming out that I can't talk about right now. But uh, certainly, if you're subscribed to the Petapixel channel, you're going to have a busy, you're going to have a lot to watch next week. I'll leave it at that. Subscribe to the Petapixel channel. That's the big takeaway there because you need to get those numbers up. And I know that they skyrocketed from zero to, uh, you know, 100,000, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, where yep. are you at now? Uh, I think we're at one. Uh, 12, something like that. But uh, it's it's certainly slowed down as we expected it would after the initial announcement, but the numbers are growing really well. Feedback has been good. But uh, yeah, we need those subscriber numbers because when we reach out for you know a shooting location or new product, the first question everyone has is how many subscribers do you have? So we need that inertia. Yes. And so anybody listening to this, please. I mean, I do care whether or not you actually consume uh, Jordan's content, but I also don't care if you don't want to, but you can show solidarity and subscribe anyhow. So uh, go ahead and do that. Artificially inflate those numbers, make Jordan look good, and I'll be happy. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, try watching one or two, see if it's for <laughs> you. But uh, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, and so I'm gonna be tuning in over the next week, and I I've heard some uh, rumors and rumblings. Uh, we won't mention anything specifically because I know you're probably NDA'd and couldn't comment on it anyhow. Um, but I did notice something that I I don't think you have any knowledge of because you're no longer in the circle anymore. But I because you are a former DP Review uh, employee, as was I for a brief period of time. Um, they're not dead yet. Uh, to yeah. a wonderful surprise. And, uh, you know, the, the date came and went that they should have shut things down. But I guess there was enough of a response that they had planned on archiving the website and continued to publish content and keep the forms and everything open during that time, which seems odd um, because that probably means people are getting paid. But I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that works behind the scenes. Um, why Amazon would want to just completely kill a website and then not do it. Uh, the, the scuttlebutt I've heard is that possibly some of the uh, employees or, you know, a former uh, people involved in running the show might be involved in buying it. Um, but there's absolutely no confirmation. And it's just rumor and hearsay uh, at this point. But 
that's a glimmer of hope even still that there might be a future life for DP review. Yeah. I mean, the people there are incredible and I, you know, I hear from them, but everyone is just like, I'm not allowed to talk about what's going on right now, uh, which is understandable. But I mean, we're already seeing just this morning, uh, Dan Bercalia had a sample gallery for the Canon R7, which was a camera they never reviewed. So I expect a full review of that coming up. It looks like they're going to keep going. I assume they found a buyer or like you mentioned, found a way to purchase the copyright themselves and keep going. But uh, I'm Yeah, I'm very hopeful. I use that website still all the time. Uh, That studio scene is absolutely invaluable for what I do. And they're great people. Like, I hope they can keep that website going. That would be fantastic. It's just crazy what Amazon did. You know, they took all the bad press for, yeah, we're shutting this down and we're not, we're just deleting it outright. Uh, You know, got weeks of bad press on that. And then to reverse their decision with all of these vague, you know, no one's saying like the website is still going or anything like that. All of the statements from DP review are, we will tell you more when we are allowed to say more. Um, And as just a reader of the site, it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, Also, you know, I made a documentary about the end of DP review before I left. And who knows if that thing is ever going to see the light of day at this point. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it, it, it might be revised as uh, as something, but the, the thing is, DP Review has been around for a long time, and one of the stories we're going to talk about uh, imaging resource as well in the rundown here. But the the idea that that level of content that goes back so many years, nobody else is going to go back and generate that type of technical material for cameras of yore, right? You know, it's it's the the kind of thing that. Well, the content is not really evergreen, like once it's off the news cycle for a couple of weeks, then it's not going to get a lot of eyeballs. But when you need to do research and find archival material, DP Review is the source. And it has always been one of the best sources for current reviews as well. So I'm glad, well, I'm glad that it will be an archive at the very least. And I'm hopeful that it will end up being more than that. Yeah, well, we'll have to stay tuned. You know, we'll stay tuned. We'll stay tuned. Let's get into the stories here. Um, First one, uh, that's why I thought of you to, to come on this particular episode. Red unveils the Komodo X 6K cinema camera, uh, camera with new sensor and faster frame rates. And, and so since, you know, as photographers, we look at some of the, the brands, you know, Panasonic has their whole broadcast division. We don't usually talk about those cameras very much. Um, but Red kind of crosses the line because it, at least the Komodo, uh, in any case, is a smaller and more affordable camera that if you are doing video work, it could be a serious option for you, uh, as I do a fair amount of cinema stuff with uh, the, currently the Lumix S1H, and that's been good enough for the clients that I've got. But what can you tell me about the Komodo and now the new Komodo X? I guess they've got this limited edition ST model that they're rolling out first, probably because the processors and sensors and things, the um, the binning on them is likely low yield right now in their first run. So they are putting a marketing spin on the availability. But that aside, uh, what do you think about Red's new offering, what it compares to the industry market and really where it falls in terms of a price point and usability? 
Yeah, I mean, the Komodo was a big step forward for them. They've always said they were going to do a consumer-red camera, and the Komodo is the closest thing they've ever gotten to it. Um, the problem is, uh, it was great that that camera had a global shutter. It's very rare to find those on cinema cameras. But there was certainly a hit in terms of your dynamic range uh, when you're doing that. And it's the same thing that we saw a while ago. Sony brought out an F5 with a regular CMOS, and then a global shutter version, the F55, which was you know, way worse in low light, substantially less dynamic range. That's usually the trade-off for that super fast readout. So what I found fascinating is that they've maintained a global shutter, but now they're claiming two and a half stop DR improvement, uh, which is... Yeah, 16.5 stops. That That's a... And a stop is not just, oh, it's a bit better. It's a doubling or a halving, uh, depending on which direction you're going. So that's a significant improvement one generation onto the next. Yeah, I mean, that would be like going from a micro four thirds to a full frame sensor in terms of the improvement in DR performance. Now, those numbers are, you know, that's who knows how usable those bottom steps are going to be in it. That's always the question when we're looking at these video cameras. But nonetheless, they've clearly done something with the sensors. Uh, Who knows where they're getting it from that have given them a substantial improvement. And I found it really interesting that they're emphasizing usability in the press release because this is where Red has always stumbled you know i've shot uh our our short film a walk down to water was shot on the red dragon 6k and under duress because that thing it's crashing all the time it's so cumbersome like even just where the ports are on it sounds like they it seems like they weren't designed for human beings to operate them uh so red they're affordable cameras but by the time you actually make them usable the price essentially doubles where this looks like it's using small uh v-mount batteries uh the new i forget the name of them they're like micro v's or something but you know a third-party battery option that'll just click right onto it um and all the ports actually are laid out in a way that makes sense. It just looks like they've listened to the feedback from a lot of people running around with Komodos and made it a camera that you can use without a rig necessarily. And uh, it's not much bigger than the Komodo. It's it's yeah. one inch longer, right? So it kind of fits in the same footprint and can probably use all the same accessories. Um, and that, I, I honestly think that if, if you needed to do any of this stuff and you're just kind of looking at jumping into it, there's going to be a lot of used Komodos on the market in the very near future, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because the investment to get those working was so high. Uh, this is going to seem like basically an equivalent priced camera that's going to be a whole lot more capable. And, and I should price, out- we should mention uh, the price is just a hair under 10,000 US, which you know might seem like a lot, but you know it's a fifth the price of other cameras that have similar capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. And this the $10,000 has always been the price of your cinema cameras. You know, if you're looking at like an Evo 1 from Panasonic or an F- F- FX9 from Sony, that, that $10,000 is the baseline. But this can shoot internal compressed RAW, and that's wonderful. RED still has the best implementation of compressed RAW, which is why they're suing everybody who tries to implement it. it is Nikon the won the suit against them, though, didn't I they? I know, it's like, crazy, so- yeah. <laughs> I think that was so, still in progress last time I was on the show, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, that makes me happy because I don't like that kind of stuck behind bars. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about copyright and and the rights to things, but honestly, we we looked at this before, and I don't think Red should have even been granted the patent to begin with. Absolutely. Um, and and look back to that conversation for for that particular discussion. But you can also do internal ProRes four 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 XQ four 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 four. I should say, Mister Four, but. Uh, and and so, Jordan, what is the difference between uh, ProRes and RedCode? 
Uh, so red code is their raw format. So right. that's a compressed, lossless, raw format. Same kind of thing that you have on your photo cameras for a very long time. Uh, where when you jump over to ProRes, that does have some of the color and exposure information baked into it. White balance is cooked into the files. It's still very gradable, especially if you're shooting a log profile with it, but it doesn't give you that same flexibility where it's you know a completely unbayered image like what you get when you shoot red code. Right. And with the red code, you can get, you know, 6K resolution at up to 80 frames per second. 5K, you know, drop the resolution, increase the frame rate to 96 frames per second. 4K gives you 120 and uh, 2K gives you 240 frames per second. So you've got some flexibility there in terms of, uh, of what you can utilize. Now, is there a reason why, why you would shoot uh, 6K at 80 frames per second rather than a smaller number than that? Uh, I think it's just as fast as the thing is capable of reading out. So yeah, you'll get slower slow motion than the standard 60 frames per second by a little bit. Uh, I think if the sensor is capable of it, they'll always give you the highest number. Now, the big thing to remember with RED, if you're shooting RAW, as you go to lower resolutions, it crops the sensor. So if you're shooting like a 2K 120 or 240, I believe it is, um, image, it's cropping down to the very center of the sensor in order to do that. Same thing if you're going to the uh, 4K, it's using a smaller than Super 35 image area. So uh, you generally want to shoot that highest resolution and then do all your cropping and everything in post. And what I liked about these cameras, both the original Komodo and, and the new X version, is that they didn't use uh, the red proprietary memory formats. Um, the Komodo used the CFast cards. Now the Komodo X uses C, uh, CF Express Type B cards, uh, which are faster and uh, and much higher capacity. And it's the current thing on the market. So um, I think that that just kind of fits really nicely into other systems where I've got that media. And let's face it, media can be expensive when you're doing long shoots. Um, and so it, it just kind of fits so much better into an ecosystem and a workflow that if I had a client that was asking me for a particular, you know, they, they needed more than the S1H could deliver for whatever reason, then this would be the ticket and I could work that into a budget for a particular project. Um, not again, not for everybody, because this, I, I don't even know if it takes stills, if that's even a, a function of the device. But uh, it, I, I think if you are looking seriously at video work, this, in my opinion, and you might disagree, is a serious camera to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're on a crew, commercial work, that kind of stuff, these make a lot of sense. The image is beautiful, and it sounds like it's going to be easier to work with. So it would be a smart option. Well, good luck getting one. They seem to be like they will be in short supply. Well, uh, uh, it has a policy where every new user is their beta tester. So uh, the initial <laughs> group can all... I think you did this even with your phone. Um, I'm sure it was a little... Oh, God, the yeah. The hydrogen yeah. was a mess. I got mine early, and uh, I regret the experience. <laughs> and these people have a similar one with a $10,000 cinema camera, I'm sure, for the first few months. Well, I, I should also state uh, just uh, on the, the idea of the, the red hydrogen, um, the company that made the screen for that, uh, Leia, went on to make the Loom Pad, and they've just released the Loom Pad 2. And I haven't really 
dug into it. I, I want to buy one. Uh, there is an, an international distributor uh, for it, but I just haven't gone that far yet. We'll make that a story for another day. But the technology that was developed and pioneered for that uh, red hydrogen has lived on. It did not just die there. And I'm very glad for it because um, for all the problems that phone had at the end of it, when it became stable, it was fun. Uh, all right, let's go on to our next story. Uh, also, all these stories today are from Petapixel. I imagine why. We've got Mr. Jordan Drake from Petapixel. Uh, <laughs> Imaging resource founder shares the tale of his site's untimely demise. Now, we talked about the uh, the purchase of Matavor Media uh, by the Bebop channel on a previous episode of this podcast. And I kind of raised a red flag that they seemed like they would be more interested in jazz times and other music related things than the unrelated photography stuff, which was not just uh, imaging resource. It includes outdoor photographer, uh, digital camera pro, um, uh, digital camera, and uh, possibly others, including uh, imaging resource. So it just disappeared. It just yeah. one day it was there. The next, no announcement, unceremoniously, the servers were shut down. As DP Review has been such a useful tool uh, for many years, Imaging Resource has been there as well. And it looks like it is now gone for good. Uh, I don't know if backups have been made, but what's your opinion, Jordan? I know it sucks. It's exactly what we didn't want to happen to DP Review is to lose all this really valuable information. And yeah, I mean, I, I love DP Review, worked for them. But when I was getting started learning about cameras, I did spend quite a bit of time on imaging resource. And especially it used to be called SLR gear, but their lens portion of the site, uh, I actually found had some of the best lens reviews out there. Uh, so I used it all the time. And I, over the years, I, since I've been in the photo video industry. I've gotten to know some of the people there. David Etchell's the founder, but especially uh, Will and Jeremy, the two main writers there, uh, are awesome people. And thankfully, Jeremy has jumped over to Petapixel now. I'm working with him. Uh, I saw so that. I, That's great. Yeah. Um, and I hope Will finds something shortly. I've been talking to him. Um, so if you need a great writer, he's, he's out there now. Um, and it looks like David Etchell's is going to be doing some writing and interviews for Petapixel as well. So the good news is those people with those really deep ties and a deep well of knowledge are still going to be producing stuff. It's just horrible to know that all of their previous writing is now gone. Well, I mean, I'm sure you can find a lot of it on the internet archive. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I use the Wayback Machine uh, quite regularly, but this seems like a website that could have just stayed in existence. Uh, the amount of bandwidth that it would cost a large company to just keep it there and run ads on it would be minimal. It, the ads would probably pay for the, the server time and it could just be a dormant asset. Absolutely. To have it gone, I, I feel upset, but I, I'm more upset by the fact that uh, Matavor Media was uh, reinventing the website. In fact, they were going to make it into a subscription model and uh, to do that, you're going to have to completely redesign the website. And it went through a number of different format changes over the years. And so they were working through the, the most recent content, and they were 99% complete in the new format when they were purchased by the Bebop channel. And they just cut it. So yeah. it, it, it was so close to a new life, uh, to a, a rejuvenized existence. And that pisses me off more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And the just the lack of 
ability for them to even post a farewell message or anything to their readers. It just, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, and this is kind of a, an interesting paradigm shift. We've got the uh, the the wonderful talent of, of you and Chris joining Petapixel, that people from Imaging Resource are now working with Petapixel as well. Petapixel is growing, and it's become it it has been an amazing resource for a very long time, and it's now becoming even more powerful. Uh, and I look forward to seeing the new ventures that Petapixel hopefully are able to uh, to uh, to bankroll. I, I don't know exactly what the the advertising uh, and business model and how much they have the potential to grow behind the scenes but it looks like they've got the opportunities being thrown at them to say hey you know what you've got this talent that is just you know it's it's everywhere and it's now looking for a new home and petapixel seems to be that home for a lot of people which i'm happy about yeah i'm thrilled about it as well i think uh you're going to get a lot of different well Reviews from some of those people who no, no longer have a home uh, are going to be coming over and doing some work on there. Um, yeah, it's really exciting. And the great thing is, you know, this is what we saw with Amazon and DP Review and w- with uh, Bebop Channel and Imaging Resource. You know, they had the parent company that doesn't care about what they do. The great thing with Petapixel is it is independent. You know, it's the founder. If he decides to shut us down, that's the only way it's going away. It's no one else's decision. <laughs> Well, and Bebop's actually, they, they sold off the plane and pilot magazines. Um, so they, they have the ability to, to sell off some of their uh, assets that they got from Matavor. And they might do that with digital photo or outdoor photographer or others, or they might keep them. But I've got a feeling that those uh, traditional publications, um, they might be looking for a new home. And I don't know... I, I mean, I, I doubt Petapixel has the funds to, to buy Outdoor Photographer magazine, but the the idea is that you've got a bunch of these um, old guard um, institutions of the photography media space that, uh, just like Imaging Resource, their future is uncertain. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on what happens with those. I, I really hope that they continue because diversity in this space is very valuable. I, I can't remember the last time I actually bought a physical magazine, but, uh, you know, if, if they wrote out a public message saying buy our magazine now, or we're going under, I'd probably buy a couple, uh, you yeah. know, just to show my support for them. So, um, there's that. Keep an eye on it. Uh, watch for advance uh, advancements or the complete destruction of those entities. We'll find out in the weeks and months to come, I'm sure. But uh, I did mention a, a paradigm shift, and, and there is one happening with the Nikon Z8. And the Petapixel article specifically states the Nikon Z8 is a para- paradigm shifting camera, and it's a cliche. I used it. I don't like it. It slips out of my mouth uh, far too often. That phrase, paradigm shift or game changer. But is it, Jordan? Is it a game changer? I think for a lot of people, it is. Like we're in a privileged place where we've been using a lot of these stacked sensor cameras for a few years now, but they've all been like really high end flagship models or smaller sensors. Um, Right. This is the lowest price we've seen on a full frame stacked sensor. And I do think once people experience the benefits of that, it's really hard to go back, you know, having a zero blackout viewfinder, super fast shooting video with less rolling shutter on it. There's a lot of advantages to having those very fast, very big sensors. Um, so 
on one hand, there's not much that's exciting because we've seen all of these features in a Z9. It is a little Z9, but I think that's also going to make it incredibly exciting. Um, just because. But well, what is the price the, point? Uh, Four thousand US on this guy. So it's so not, it's not cheap, a cheap. No, but but it's also not flagship price. Exactly. Um, and th- it's worth mentioning that the Z9, we were surprised how affordable it was for a flagship. I mean, those were previously like six to $7,000. I'm sure you remember with your uh, 1DX2, was it? Uh, uh, I had the 1DX and the Mark II, and uh, 7000 Canadian, I think, is, is where we were at in terms of the purchasing price of those. Yeah, so they brought the price down with the 9, and then they've gone even lower with the 8, with really the only trade-offs is battery life, uh, no GPS, uh, and only one CF Express card slot. But other than that, it's functionally identical, which is really impressive. The last time they did this was the D3 and D700. Uh, and back then, Nikon was really struggling for market share. Those two cameras changed it, and they're in the exact same situation again. You know, uh, They were late to the full-frame mirrorless game. Uh, the Z6 original, Z7 original were a bit underwhelming, um, but now they've got something that's truly compelling, uh, and they're making it even more accessible now with the smaller, cheaper body. I think it's really smart. You know, dual versus single card slots. Memory cards are so good these days. If you buy a reputable branded one, I haven't heard in the last five years of somebody's memory card from a known brand failing. And I have never heard of a story where somebody was using a mission critical camera and chose to have their camera with good cards in uh, the... I don't know what you call it, like a RAID 1. So like it's going to send the same data to both cards and, and yep, make a backup. duplicate of it as, as a backup. And then had a card die and then profess to the world, thank you for having two card slots. Otherwise, I would have lost my data. That's a story I've never heard. Now, there, there might it might be out there. And because it wasn't a big catastrophe, then it doesn't make a big uh, news splash about it. But I having a single card slot, I don't think is a deal breaker for the majority of people out there looking to even use these products on a commercial basis. Um, as a wedding photographer, you might want to, you know, hedge your bets and have that second card slot, but, um, Olympic photographers too. But for the majority of the work that I do, um, I, you know, I record just a sing- there's only one card in my camera. It's got two slots. I only ever use the one and I've never had a problem. Knock on wood. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly had some corrupt cards uh, happen before, um, but we're using, you know, a different camera every other week. And sometimes you forget to format it when you're juggling them over. So that's probably part of why I've run into those issues. But I mean, yeah, it's I have had files corrupt that I wasn't able to get back for reviews where the camera's already back with the manufacturer. Uh, it sucks. So when you're doing mission critical stuff, like a big documentary that we were working on, we only have one shot at it. I am shooting dual backup in those situations, largely for peace of mind. And I think it's important to offer that. But this camera does have dual card slots. It's just not dual CF Express. So it's going to slow things right. down if you're shooting you know, raw photo bursts or some of the higher um, data rate video modes, you won't be able to do a simultaneous backup. But uh, yeah, it's a niche use case where you're absolutely going to want that. And sometimes it's great to be able to grab cheap media if I know I'm just going to go out and shoot, you know, not 20 frame per second raw burst. Really? You, you would go and just, I mean, don't, don't you already have good memory cards? Why would you go and buy cheap ones? 
I mean, I've already got some cheap. I'm saying hypothetically, Don. I've got. Okay. I'm behind a stack of CF Express cards right now. But uh, for a lot of people, it's nice to be able to use affordable media in a pinch. Or my wife was just out shooting a review for uh, TCS TV. Forgot she had a card, so Walmart came through with a cheap, absolutely terrible SD card in a pinch. So it doesn't. Yeah, happen. I've okay. I've done that. Uh, I will admit that I've uh, you know driven two hours to a waterfall scene. And uh, I forgot my me- uh, memory card. And I'm not going to drive two hours back home. I'm, I'm going to drive to the nearest uh, convenience store, maybe. They've got something. And, and that'll, that'll suit me for the day. <laughs> um, but if we talk about the, the Z8 and, and what that means for cameras moving forward, the, the, the paradigm that I'm seeing here is a shift of pro-level features going further into the amateur photography space. And I don't think that there's any debate on that. And I think that's always been happening. But what that also assumes is that the pro level space is going to, in the next iteration, the next jump, the Z9 Mark II or whatever Nikon is going to call it, the ZX, I have no idea. Um, But that camera, if they're willing to put almost all of the features in the Z8, one must wonder what the successor to the Z9 is going to bring to the table because it must do substantially more than the Z9 to make eyes, uh, you know, look in that direction. Yeah, it's going to go back to how it was before, where a pro-level camera was a niche thing. You know, it was for a very small audience of like sports, wildlife photographers who needed a big, fast beast of a camera, where the Z9 um, was a camera that was really crossing over to the enthusiast market because people wanted access to the features of that stacked sensor. Uh, So I would expect that whatever the next Nikon flagship is, it's going to be both more expensive than the Z9 was when it launched. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be aimed at a much smaller audience who absolutely need higher performance. Because the Z8, I can't think of much you could throw at that that it's not going to perform. Right. And you've got, of course, Canon on the other side of things where their naming structure is the, the, the lower the number, the more illustrious the camera. And there's nothing with the number one associated with it either, right? They, they've held some of those features back for what the next generation of pro level cameras is going to be, which we have not, um, you know, heard much of in the last little while. And, and I get, of course, we've had the pandemic and supply chain issues and uh, wartime and, and so many different factors that put uh, a bit of a, a crunch on these new technologies like i I still don't know when i'm going to see uh an organic sensor from panasonic i mean come on guys this who knows this technology needs to come to the market now folks (laughs) yeah and canon's in an interesting place because remember the r3 is more expensive than a z9 uh that's canon's current flagship mirrorless camera and it's almost half the megapixels 24 as opposed to 45 megapixels and reads out slower than the Nikon sensor. So I feel like Canon's fabrication is a little bit behind what Sony's capable of right now. Well, and, uh, you know, looking at uh, Sony tech, uh, which Sony makes a ton of sensors, right? And and you've got, I think I, I saw a, a patent or availability uh, on the market of, of a new Micro Four Thirds uh, 6K capable uh, sensor from Sony. And so that, you know, could likely be used in future cameras from OM systems or from Panasonic in, in that platform as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that being said, uh, an important question for you, uh, Jordan, and I don't mean to pry into what's going to come next <laughs> week, but I'm going to ask you a roundabout question. 
If you needed to buy a camera today, should you wait a week or get it now? Oh, that's a, it depends on what class of camera <laughs> you're looking at. For you and I, Don, I think ev- everything in that prosumer, you know, upper level enthusiast uh, camera has been released that we're going to see for a little while. Can I say, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, buy a camera now. They're, they're all good. <laughs> they're all good. I mean, you can't buy a bad camera. Uh, I mean, okay. I, I'm sure you can. I'm looking at the Sigma FPL right now on my desk, Don. It is possible to buy a bad camera. It, <laughs> is that still being sold? It's yeah, yeah. It's their most recent camera release. Oh, re- oh, yeah. The FP- that's um, that that's the L mount one. I was thinking about whether uh, Quadro stuff, um, which uh, were interesting experiments in time that uh, I don't think are available anymore. No. But uh, the, the idea of, uh, you know, I, I talked to you last time about getting a, a camera for my daughter, uh, and I've settled on the Nikon one series J2 in pink. Nice. And while it's old, uh, I can get it for about 250 bucks and, uh, comes with the lens and, uh, lens is pink too. So that's a, that's a bonus and it's not a bad camera. Uh, it oh. never was. I mean, the format never got the success that I think Nikon wanted for it. But uh, for a seven-year-old's birthday, that is going to be a winning gift. Yeah, you got to find the little 10 mil lens for that too. That thing was adorable. Uh, I mean, that's that camera is actually interesting. The one series was the first time they did a mirrorless camera with phase detect autofocus in it. It's almost a, and a super fast electronic shutter. It's kind of a precursor to what we're seeing now on the Z8 with a sensor that's eight times as big. Yeah, and uh, the small lenses, I, I'm sure that I could get uh, adapters to uh, throw other uh, lenses on the, the one series. They must exist somewhere. Uh, it's a 2.7 times crop. Enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, you know what? I, I Maybe I shouldn't get that adapter. I don't want my daughter to be raiding my, my lens cabinet here. <laughs> but... <laughs> but hey, that, that's uh, her birthday's next month, so we'll uh, we'll we'll see how that uh, how that goes. But that I hope she's not listening to the podcast. I'm pretty sure she doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody in my family listens to this. But uh, let's let's go on to uh, our fourth story, uh, which kind of comes in two parts. One is late breaking news. But before we get to that, uh, let's talk about once more where people can find you, Jordan Drake, on your own social media channels, what you're doing with Petapixel, and then uh, talk about these final two stories uh, also presented to us by Petapixel. Sweet. Uh, yeah, you can find me my work on YouTube under Petapixel. Uh, as well, Chris and I are writing on the website now. So when we post a video, most of the time we'll have a full article there. If you're, uh, you've got somebody over your shoulder, you can't watch a video at that moment, you can certainly hit up the text as well. And then you can find me on my socials. I'm that Jordan Drake on Twitter and Instagram. Wonderful. Uh, I hope people do follow you. You deserve more attention. You do good work, sir. Um, the final story, uh, photographers score early victories in copyright lawsuits against artist Richard Prince. And are you familiar with Richard Prince, Jordan? Uh, yes. Uh, due to a little bit of uh, reading on the article here, I am now incensed and furious with Richard Prince. <laughs> so what he's done, uh, and this has been a long going battle, is people had posted photos onto Instagram. And so Richard Prince... Uh, took a screenshot of that photo 
with the name of the person that posted it and the, you know, obviously all the Instagram stuff, you know, three weeks ago, whatever, the number of likes uh, and comments. And um, generally I, I would have to review them all, but the ones that I'm seeing in, in this article uh, say yeah, that he's commented on them, yeah. which then in uh, inters some level of uh, involvement in the creative process when he takes the screenshot and then sells it for a hundred thousand dollars a piece. Now I can't imagine how anybody would buy that. I, I mean, the the mental processes that you would have to go through definitely make it feel like an art buying, money money laundering type of scheme. I'm not sure what that would be, but it just does not seem like the like anybody authentically would buy that and associate the value with it as it is at $100,000 for what most sane people looking <laughs> at that must question the authenticity of. Whether or not they're coming to a conclusion one way or another, I'm saying that they there should be a question of whether or not that's okay. And uh, so... Anyhow, uh, l let's dig into the, the story because basically the judge who um, uh, Prince had, had, had basically put out the uh, a motion to dismiss, right? Just wave yeah. this away. We don't want this to go to court. We don't think the claims are valid. The judge ruled, we think they are valid. And there is no motion to dismiss that will be entertained by this court. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, so the court case is going to go ahead uh, from the two professional photographers that um, are, I'm just trying to find their names, uh, Eric McNatt uh, of Kim Gordon, and uh, then the other one was Donald Graham's photograph of Rastafarian smoking a joint. Those are the two people that are involved in this particular case, and it's going to possibly go to court. Now, the thing is, especially with the second half of the story that we're going to talk about. I don't know if they will actually get a verdict on it because, well, at this point you might just want to settle so that it doesn't create a precedent for other people because these two people are not the only people I think that uh, Richard Prince has done this with in the past. And there's other cases that have gone on. Um, where do you think copyright really stands with this uh, in terms of, I mean, obviously neither of us are, are lawyers, but should this, like, what would you think if you were to judge this, Jordan, you're not a judge either, but what would you judge it to be? Well, I mean, that's the tough thing is transformative is so subjective that I think we'll see endless examples. And we're going to get to that with another story here uh, where people can argue that, you know, slightly modifying someone else's work uh, makes it into a new piece of art. And, you know, as a musician and, you know, someone producing video, I totally understand that influences um or something that can even subconsciously slip by, but this is not that at all. This is a screenshot of someone else's art. Um, so in this case, yeah, judge Jordan is obviously going to stand with the photographers, any kind of creative person, because they're all getting squeezed right now. And it's only going to get worse with all of the, you know, AI based art, AI based creation that's coming out right now. Um, yeah. I'm going to side with, 
the two photographers in this case, obviously. I'm on this podcast, Don. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to side with the photographers, and we're going to do that as well with the Supreme Court of the United States. And this was just published today as we're recording this um, by Jaron at Petapixel. And this is an evolving story because there's a long, uh, you know, when the Supreme Court rules on something, there's a multi-page, and in this case, an 87-page, seven-to-two opinion. It was written mm. by Justice Sotomayor, um, and this involves a different prince, uh, specifically the artist formerly known as Prince. Uh, did he ever readopt that name, or did he still keep using this strange I, symbol? He was just Prince towards the end, I believe. Okay. Um, so Supreme Court rules that Andy Warhol's Prince art is copyright infringement. And you might be familiar with the purple-faced, orange background caricature of Prince. Um, that uh, has been found to be an infringement on copyright from the original photographer, Lynn Goldsmith. Now, th this is important because it is such a dramatic change from the original black and white portrait of Prince mm -hmm. to something garishly contrasting, adding colors that didn't exist, um, adding an outline that is offset from the outline that's brighter. I mean, there's a lot of things that change in terms of the art uh, and the way that it's presented. But it was based on uh, Lynn Goldsmith's image. And the key takeaway from this that the Supreme Court uh, ruled on uh, is that it serves the same purpose as the original and thereby is not transformative because it, no matter how much you changed it, it is a, it, it is a different means to the same end. Uh, I, as I'm, I'm trying to summarize 87 pages that I haven't read yet. Is that a good summary? That That's pretty good. Yeah. And this was a really tough one. I mean, the last one I'd say is so cut and dry, but yeah, it does look very different. Um, but I mean, the intent on both is to make Prince look cool, which is easy to do. Uh, so, yeah, I do understand that. Um, but I would have a tough time calling this case because, you know, until I saw the little petapixel mask where they have it blinking on and off, the um, altered image over top of the photograph. Yeah, go check uh, that out on petapixel, by the way. Uh, check out all of these articles because there's visuals to accompany our commentary there. Yeah, that that's, makes it a lot more obvious. But looking at them side by side at a glance, I wouldn't immediately assume it was the same image. This went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and that means that there's no higher court that can rule on this. Um, and it sets an, an important precedent where uh, any other cases that are similar, this is going to be the reference point in terms of, okay, if you're if you are serving the same purpose with your modification of an image, no matter how extreme, then uh, you uh, you really don't have a card to play. You know your mm. your hand is all all twos at this point. So, uh, which I mean, wouldn't be the worst hand if it's all the same card. But you're getting my analogy, <laughs> um, and 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 this goes back to the idea of uh, the Richard Price case, which now you've got the Supreme Court case, this ruling that's come down that if it's going to basically serve the same purpose, then how do you uh, qualify for this as, as fair use? Um, but does it in the Richard Price case serve the same purpose? And that's where things get interesting for me, because if you're taking the image 
okay, well, the image was created for a reason, but you're framing it with the name of the photographer, the number of likes that it's received, and social commentary on it. Is that the same purpose as the original image? Or is the context of where it was posted originally on Instagram carried through by the interactions within that as the same purpose? Uh, we'll need a ruling on that, I think, to figure that out concretely. My brain is leaking out my ears right now, Don. Uh, this podcast will do that to you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, so I mean, leave that to the lawyers and the judges to to figure out. I mean, our opinions are just opinions based on the the knowledge that we possess, having no legal, uh, you know, background. I, I will say though that I deal with copyright infringement on a regular basis, and there's a number of images that I have um, that uh, get infringed globally. I mean, Canada and the United States, they're big ones, and so a positive case from the Supreme Court ruling uh, basically in favor of the photographer, I think it's a good thing. I think that's Absolutely. going to help photographers just defend their artwork. And we've talked about copyright a lot on this podcast. I encourage everybody to look for their images where they may be online. And uh, images spread farther than you might think, and they get modified in ways that you might not have expected, just like we're seeing in this case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court and uh, the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith case is now in favor from the Supreme Court, again, uh, of Lynn Goldsmith. So that that's one for the history books, folks. Yep, big deal. All right, let's now move on to the final section of this podcast. And and by the way, uh, the, the picks of the week that uh, that I put in at the end here, you know, when I do this on a weekly basis, it can be sometimes hard to find a new pick, especially if I haven't been actively shooting in that week or I've been doing something that didn't involve new equipment. But sometimes I get gear that is kind of uh, sent to me uh, Jordan Drake style. It's behind a non-disclosure agreement and I can't talk about it for a while. Um, but then when I can, I have already been creating amazing work with it. And uh, over the past week's I have had this. I've had it for, well, probably about two months now. It is the uh, Platypod Handle, which is a really unique uh, device. It, it basically, it's a riser. So on the bottom, you've got a tripod mount, uh, a three-eighths by default, but you can make that smaller and same on the top so that you can fit this on a tripod uh, and extend the center column if that's what you wish to do. Uh, or you can use this as a standalone vlogging tool where if you want to have the weight uh, rebalanced on a camera, you can easily do that with something like this. For me, it's got eight hard points around the top. And I can screw in little elbows or goosenecks or something right into that. And that is detachable, as is the base of it. So if I don't want to have, and here I am taking it apart to show Jordan that nobody else can see. If I want to take that and put it together as a tiny little piece that just gives me a whole bunch of hard points mm. to make magic with, then I can do that too. Uh, it's... You know, it, it's a very inexpensive tool on their Kickstarter campaign right now, which has been completely funded. Uh, you can get one for $49 US. 
And uh, it has the bonus effect of looking like a lightsaber in its full construction. <laughs> uh, and I, I honestly want to try to find a way to build a little light and sound mechanism into it. I think it's possible. The tubes are hollow in the center, so I could get something that goes inside there that has a, gy- uh, a, a gyrometer. Uh, is that what you would call it? Anyhow. The platypod handle, $49 for something that is incredibly well-engineered. I use a, uh, a, a Peak Design travel tripod, which it's really robust, it's lightweight, but it also doesn't have that extra leg segment that a landscape photographer might want. Now, I don't need to worry about not getting that maximum height that I might be after because I can throw this on there and it works wonders for me. Jordan, are you envious that I got something before you did? I am incredibly envious. I want to put a bunch of Noga arms on that thing and make it look like a spider. I think that would be great. Uh, I actually, I I hooked on eight uh, gooseneck arms with crab clamps on the top. Those clamps hold uh, ultraviolet flashlights. And uh, I've got eight ultraviolet flashlights all pointing down towards a flower. And the whole thing is mounted via the bottom uh, onto the rotational platform that's available from Cognosys uh, for their stack shot platform. And I can rotate the entire thing around with the ultraviolet lights moving in unison so that there's no shift of the shadows uh, mm-hmm. when I'm rotating the subject. And I've used that for two documentary film projects thus far. It has been a very valuable tool. I don't think I could do it any other way. Yeah, it completely looks like something that was built for you. Um, how many mounting <laughs> points can I get in a very small area? So uh, good on them. It looks really cool. I'd like to check that out. Yeah, and, and I'll, well, maybe I'll uh, mention that to them. Maybe they could get something in your hands if you're at all curious about it. But, you know, it's just the kind of thing where the company Platypod has always been making equipment that is helpful to photographers. The cost is as minimal as it can be. They make the best ball head that I've ever used. And, um, and this is their, their next thing out the door. And I, I wish them well, but I also want photographers to have it because even if you can't figure out how you're going to find it useful right now, you'll find a use for it. I know I have. Yeah. I really want to try that ball head out. That thing looks brilliant. I should write an email. I'm going to do that after this podcast. All right. All right. Well, uh, Jordan, what, what do you have for a pick? Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I came on this show and sung the praises of the iFootage Cobra 2 monopod. The greatest monopod in the history of ever was what I called the uh, video where I looked at that thing. Uh, it's one of the very, those very rare products where it's like, I really don't have anything to criticize with this. Uh, and now the Cobra 3 has come out and it's yeah, it's got some small improvements, like the legs are a little more stable. I'm actually very comfortable just setting the camera on the monopod and walking away from it now. We've done that several times. But the big thing is there's a model called the Cobra 3 pedal. And they've put what a is the pedal? pedal at, there's a little pedal at the bottom of it. When you step on that, it will release the um, kind of like a hydrostatic ball pan axis on it. So you can re-level the tripod, rotate it. Um click the pedal down a second time and it'll click right back into pointing straight up. Uh, So if I'm shooting on an uneven surface or something like that, step on the pedal, I can level it out and hold it there. Um, And then once I'm back on a flat surface, click it down and it's going to be a monopod that sticks straight up again. Um, It's a useful little tool. The only thing I wish is that as opposed to a toggle, I could just step down on the monopod. It would let me bend it around. And then when I release it, uh, it would stay in that position, but unfortunately, you got to click it, 
point it back. It'll only lock when it's pointing straight up as uh, the one drawback to it. But there have been a lot of times where I found that extremely useful when we're out shooting on uneven terrain on the rocks, things like that. It's a cool little function. And I think it's totally worth the premium to have it. Well, and $194 US, I found it on B&H, um, which for a product that is going to be critical to your success is not a huge price to pay. Um, there's uh, there's a carbon fiber uh, version that says coming soon. Uh, I, they say aluminum, but it says not available. So I'm not sure exactly what the configurations will be, but it does look like a really power. And they have a compressed one too, like a tabletop type yep. version that has very similar functionality. And that's why I asked you to confirm that this is the one that you were talking about, but it looks pretty cool. Yep. Uh, and I like the fact that it's got uh, I mean, uh, two things that I always want in a tripod uh, is uh, the clasping locks rather than the spinning locks, because I never know by looking at it how secure it is if it's a spin lock. Uh, so that that's great. But also, it just looks aesthetically pleasing. And yeah. I don't know why that's important to me. But it is. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, when it's I'm got out the in red... public, most of the time I'm carrying a monopod. I want it to look good. <laughs> you you remember when you came to my place and you didn't bring a monopod and you had to use mine? I was going to tell that story. Yeah. One of the worst <laughs> shooting experiences was I, those little like $40, the old Manfrotto that I think is designed for a point and shoot camera, put a Panasonic S1H with a 2.8 zoom lens on it. You made it work yeah. somehow, man. I don't I know. I can't believe I didn't like shear the mount <laughs> off of it or something. But uh, yeah, that was a real struggle. And it makes me definitely it made me happy to get back to the iFootage monopod I like. And um, I didn't mention it because it was a feature on the previous version. But my favorite thing about this monopod is you can pop off the uh, top plate and the base legs. And you've got a little high hat, super low tripod uh, also included with it, which is incredibly stable. I use it for time lapse uh, or like composite video where I have to shoot two identical plates. Uh, it's wonderful. Okay, cool. So you can uh, compress it down. That's great. So I guess the the compressed version is sold without the uh, the main column that that uh, that rises up. But so it's reconfigurable, folks. That's that's cool too. Um, all right, uh, that's uh, that's a great pick. Uh, thank you very much for that, Jordan. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. I appreciate everybody that listens, and thank you for uh, you know uh, bearing with the intermittence of me being off for a week or two. But uh, a much-needed uh, respite on this end was required and well-enjoyed. So we're going to be back at this again weekly. Uh, Jordan, I, I don't know, maybe I'll get Chris on in, in the next uh, couple of weeks to, to, to fill in some of the stuff that you guys are working on. I'd love to have both of you on the podcast. But your opinions on the video stuff, it's the chef's kiss, man. I appreciate you. Oh, it's always fun being on here, Don. I'll come back absolutely anytime. All right. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Uh, this winds down another episode, so you know what to do. It's now time to get out and shoot. 